Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. All right, Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Great to have you with us on the show today. In a moment, uh, we will go to Pittsburgh and we will talk with. Jeff Byers on the NCAA Wrestling Championships. First of all, our play-by-play call of the day. Butler this time keeps it to the corner now to Reddick. And another three by J.J. Reddick. Five threes, 21 points, Sixers by seven. Tom McGinnis with the call on the Sixers Network as Sixers roll on. No Joel Embiid in the lineup last night when they played Charlotte. They've got the Celtics coming up. Something tells me Embiid will play then. Yes, he's definitely going to play tonight. Huge, huge game for the Sixers. 0-3 against the Celtics coming into tonight. So that'll be uh, tonight's game. Uh, Also, uh, Belmont won over Temple last night. Fran Dumphy's uh, illustrious career comes to a close at the age of 70. Great years at Penn. Great years at Temple. I want to say 17 years at Penn, 13 at Temple. And uh, also Phil Martelli getting fired earlier in the week at St. Joe's. So Philly basketball dramatically changing. What are your thoughts on the Phil Martelli firing? A lot of debate today in Philadelphia of how that was handled and not a lot of happy people on Hawk Hill. I am a big Phil Martelli guy. So let's start with that. Off the court... About as nice a guy as I've ever been around. Uh, did some great things with St. Joe's, including getting them to the Elite Eight. Now, albeit that was a while ago with Jameer Nelson. But you have to know who you are and how somebody fits into that, and that happens to be a guy like Phil Martelli. I like what he stands for. At least, at least the you know the guy I know. I'm not around him obviously every day, but I've been around him enough where I have a fair amount of respect for him. And handle it's a new athletic director, so you sense it was a possibility. Is it the move I would make? I'd have to be in the on the inside to know fully. But from the outside looking in, it's not the move I would make. But I'd also have, if I'm new in this job, I'd like to sit down with him and say, okay, where do you stand right now? Where do you stand next year? What are your long-term goals as to how you want to go about this? And is there anything that we haven't been doing that you need us to do? And then, then you discuss whether those needs are possible or not. But I've always been somebody that uh, I've always liked Phil Martelli. It's like I like Fran Duffy. I don't know Fran Duffy very well. I've had less contact with Fran Duffy than than uh, than Phil. But <laughs> Fran has always put everybody else first. You notice even last night when he was talking about his last game, 
he talked about the last game for Shiz Alston and other players, and he talked about the game. He didn't talk about himself. That's the way he is. All right, so Mike Trout doesn't have to talk about himself. Four hundred thirty million over twelve years, but you know what, uh, Matty Ice, he's going to have to pay all those California taxes. That's true, but I think he'll still be with a pretty yeah. penny after all that's said and done, anyway. Um, so now let's uh, shift from that seismic contract to that of Jeff Byers in Pittsburgh. Hello, Jeff. Great to have you with us. Well, thanks, Steve, and I'm feeling better about my decision not to take that million-dollar contract with the TV station in California to stay in Pennsylvania where I can pay the lower tax. Uh, actually, to be honest with you, Jeff, uh, it really was not a sound decision on your part. <laughs> what? <laughs> a million dollars is still – that's still big-time cash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, son of a gun. You could still figure it out even after the taxes. I, can, I Well, I'll add it to the long list of uh, poor decisions made by yours early over the years. <laughs> Including the decision to do this show. Oh, all right. <laughs> Let's. Uh, I, I want to get to obviously Nolf, Nickel, and Hall are the favorites to win in their weight classes. Uh, Nolf and Nickel, in particular, are heavy favorites to win their weight classes. You've been around them every day now for four years. So, yeah, I don't, you know, we've talked about how Kale makes it fun and tries to relieve the pressure as much as possible, but this is an individual thing. What is it about the personalities? Because the, you go 362 days, and you're one mistake away from not from not meeting your goal in any round. So what is it about the personality of these guys that has allowed them to, no matter what, even though they know it could be the end every time they walk out there, you know, I mean, I mean the end of the being at the top of the podium, and yet they still perform at a high level. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things at play. Both of them are obviously very driven individuals and have uh, a, a clear purpose with which they live their lives and conduct uh, their business each day. Uh, I also think one of the keys, and I, I really, the more I'm around the sport, the more I'm realizing that the ones that are uh, really built for long-term success are the guys that kind of have it in perspective. They, they wrestle because they truly love it. Uh, they they enjoy the competition. They thrive in the one-on-one matchups, but they have other things going on in their lives. You know, Jason Dolph, of course, got married last summer. Right. Uh, he, he has, uh, you know, that is, is his top priority. His family is uh, his top priority. Uh, Bo, uh, they're, they're both very uh, religious, very grounded in their uh, faith in God, and uh, trusting that uh, whatever uh, outcome happens on the mat, that's just part of the process of their uh, life and, and the way it's supposed to be. But um, And they're just very consistent. They're both guys that just uh, bring enthusiasm, bring passion with them each and every day uh, into practice, each and every time they take the mat. And, you know, I know uh, some of the, <laughs> some of the uh, other teams fans like to kind of poke some fun at the kale for constantly talking about gratitude but it really is what these kids live every day they they are uh, truly grateful just to have the opportunity to be around one another and to have the opportunity to compete in the sport that they absolutely love all right let's take it once the next step obviously mark hall won six high school titles along the way he's now won a national championship here but Nickel, Nolf, and Hall also have something in common, too. They're not going to end up winning four national championships in this level, which means they have lost at this level and in this tournament. What 
has it done for each of them perspective-wise as to how to handle the next three days? Yeah, it's been interesting, Steve, because I, I do think Jason Alf has been pretty open about his goal was to come in and win four national titles and go undefeated, and obviously that didn't happen. But uh, And he's talked about how his perspective has changed during his time at Penn State. He still wants to win everything uh, he competes in, but he's not as focused on uh, those ultimate uh, accomplishments. He really has dialed in on the day-to-day routine and uh, enjoying the grind, if you will. Uh, I think Bo Nickel has always kind of had a, a pretty good perspective. He, you know, is very competitive and wants to win uh, at everything. But I think, uh, if anything, that uh, loss his freshman year uh, just kind of fueled his fire to go out and uh, continue to try to score those uh, big moves. It was more um, not about not trying to make the mistake that cost him that. It's just that he, he was determined to wrestle through those situations, and obviously that paid off in the NCAA Finals last season in a huge way. And Mark Hall is just a guy that comes in with, uh, again, also very uh, motivated. I don't know that the loss necessarily motivated him anymore uh, for this season, but I do think uh, it maybe helped kind of keep his focus on getting better every day and, and adding little elements to his game every day. Um, and so I, I think all three uh, would be reluctant to tell you that they benefited from the losses, but I, I do think all three, to some extent, did. Again, I, I think they all have pretty good perspectives uh, regardless, and I'm not sure any of them would have been uh, you know, not approaching this tournament with that uh, attitude of gratitude. But I, I do think those losses just kind of helped fuel the fire, but also kind of keep things in perspective. They realized uh, that, and both talked about this a couple of times, that if he loses, it's certainly not his plan and uh, not what he's about. But if he loses, he's going to wake up the next day and go on with the rest of his life and, and live it uh, as, um, as with as much fulfillment as if he had won a title. Right. And, it's not. So I, I, and I think that's. I think that's kind of key having that perspective. It's not completely their identity as as men. Uh, that, that's a big part of this. Uh, now I want to get to Vincenzo Joseph. He's going home for this. Obviously, the Big Ten did not work out the way he wanted to. What is it about about him wrestling in Pittsburgh, and what kind of a motivator? Now, trying to win the national title is motivation enough, but the fact it's there, what does it mean? Yeah, I think he's excited about having as many family and friends. Both he and Jason have uh, uh, a number of friends who maybe have not seen them wrestle competitively at the collegiate level, but followed them in high school, uh, that have been able to get tickets this weekend and will have that opportunity uh, but I think for Chenzo, it's, it's really it's been more about just kind of focusing in, as he has done each of the last two years, on uh, making the, the subtle adjustments between the Big Tens and Nationals to get where he wants to be. And, you know, I, I think he's trying not to focus on uh, the fact that it is in Pittsburgh until Saturday night. I do think uh, if he wins the national title Saturday night, uh, it is going to be uh, a little extra meaningful to have done it here yeah. in Pittsburgh. You'll know where to celebrate. Uh, so no question. <laughs> All right, now let's get to Anthony Kassar. Kassar has had a wonderful season, and he trained himself, and he's in, really he's come up from very little to being something that is very special. He also goes into this maybe for the first time in his career as the hunted instead of the hunter 
What about that angle on this? Yeah, I don't know. You know, we talk about, again, that gratitude throughout the team. I don't know that there's a kid in this tournament that is more grateful for the opportunity to be here uh, than Anthony Kassar. The the, uh, story of perseverance for him, starting with the the fact that I'm not sure if fans realize Anthony Kassar came in as a walk-on. He he was not getting any scholarship money. And this was a guy that was pretty accomplished. He won a junior world championship in the in 2015, so it's a little bit of a leap of faith uh, on Kassar's part just to get to Penn State, and then he goes through the injury, withdraws uh, from school, takes a year off, and then has to decide whether or not you know he, he wants to come back and go through the uh, process again. Then he loses out the 197 spot to Shakur Rashid last year. And this after he beats the number one guy in the country, and I think it'd be pretty easy to sit around and sulk after that. And man, these coaches, uh, what more do they want from me? I beat the number one guy in the country, and they still didn't give it to me. And Kassar had just the opposite reaction. It's like, yeah, you know what? They they didn't give it to me because I wasn't scoring enough points. I I I didn't get the job done the way uh, they need me to. And he went about uh, going to work on figuring out. Uh, how he could be the best wrestler he could be, and part of that was to move up to heavyweight. And I just think he is uh, a guy that is absolutely thriving uh, at heavyweight and is just as disciplined as anybody else on the team when it comes to diet, sleep, the the whole bit. Uh, And again, just a a very grateful individual. And I think he's one of – I really think there's just three guys that have a legitimate shot of the national title here, Steve. I I think the top three guys are are the three contenders. And – you know, it's, uh, on any given day, I think any of those three could knock the other off. But I, I just, I think Kasari is peaking at the right time. He's going in with this uh, right attitude, and I, I really like Kasari's chances of uh, being on top of the podium Saturday night. And I think it's going to be a great inspirational story uh, for other people coming along in the sport. In fact, I just want to make one quick, just just quick note on Bo Nickel. I think people do have to remember, and the wrestling fans already know this, but for the casual fan, I don't think they realize that he's wrestling at different weight classes as he's going along this. So he's facing different competition every year yeah. in, in, in the ability to try and win a third national championship. I mean, he has moved up a couple of times because of his body type, and it was best for the team to do it. Uh, yes. I want to get to uh, Shakur Rashid uh, and where he is right now. Yeah, Steve, I think he's actually physically, I think, better than uh, I would have believed possible months ago. I think better than he would have believed possible. Uh, that's not to say that he's uh, 100%, but I think uh, he knows uh, what his limitations are here physically. Uh, and I think having, you know, watched Jason Nolf do what he did last year, uh, with a, a worse knee uh, injury uh, is providing him some solace and some understanding. And he knows, you know, some situations that he's going to have to stay out of and uh, some situations that he's going to have to work through. But I, he's really in pretty good shape here uh, physically, and he's feeling good. He's feeling confident uh, going into the tournament, which is a, a big deal. So, um, and again, I, I really think he, he's a guy that's on a mission, and uh, and we'll get to the finals now. What happens with Miles Martin? Uh, right, it ought to be entertaining. We'll find out Saturday night. But I, I really think uh, Rashid right now is in a very good place, both mentally and physically, heading into the tournament. What about Roman Bravo Young and Nick Lee? Uh, I, every time I watch Nick Lee, I see the potential he can he can go all the way. What do you see? 
Yeah, I, I see the same thing, Steve, and I, I really think, Nick, uh, in that loss to McKenna, you know, this whole thing is, is a learning process, and you're trying to put it all together for nationals. And I really think Nick came away for, uh, from that loss after talking with the, the coaches and some of the other uh, personnel around the program with a, kind of a, a renewed understanding of uh, what it's going to take to win a national title. And um, I, I, again, I like his chances of at least getting to the finals. Uh, Diaka Mahalis is just sure. uh, a phenomenal wrestler. Exactly. I, I mean, just yep. one of the, the best all-around athletes out there. And, and he's a fun kid. I, if, if that is the final matchup on Saturday night, uh, you're going to have two of the the really neat kids in the sport beating for the national title. But I, I really think Nick's in a good place to get there. Uh, and again, I, just some little adjustments that I think uh, he's made here just over these last couple of weeks to get himself to where uh, he's at least going to give himself a, a real shot at, uh, at winning the whole thing. And, and RBY? Yep, I think learning the, the same thing, just uh, going through – uh, kind of the growing process here and learning from each bout. Uh, obviously, a very intense potential <laughs> second round matchup with us yep. at DeSanto. Yep. You know, DeSanto just came out, uh, and, you know, Roman was not ready for his physicality uh, yep. in, in, at the Big Ten tournament. Uh, I think he will be this time. Again, I think there are some adjustments that have been made here over the last couple of weeks. Uh, DeSanto is a phenomenal wrestler. I mean, you can make the adjustments and still lose, but I think it'll be a much different bout. Uh, this time around, I think it'll be more competitive from the outset, uh, and I think Bravo Young feels, uh, and I think the Penn State coaches feel, if he can keep this to a one or two point bout going into that third period, uh, Roman will find a way to win it this time around. All right, when you look at the weight classes and the way they stack up, are there a couple of them that you look at and go, uh, that is wide, wide open, even though the seeds tell you that that's one, two, three, four, but to you, in your opinion, they're wide open. Yeah, I mean, I think 133 is, is just so, so deep. And uh, Mitrich has been very good, obviously, two seed. But, I mean, uh, two seed because of the uh, injury at the, the Big Ten tournament. Right. But uh, he and Dayton Fix are uh, phenomenal wrestlers. But it would not surprise me if, if neither one of them even uh, made the finals. Now, if I was putting money on it, those are the two I think will be there at the end of the day. But I really think you can go probably 12, 13 deep. Uh, and those guys, again, on a given day, I think are all capable of, of beating each other. I, to me, that's probably as wide open a weight class as there is uh, kind of top to bottom. I think 165, Steve, and I know folks are uh, dialed in here on Marinelli and his big win over Joseph. And, yes. Uh, Joseph trying to get his third championship. But I really look at that weight class uh, kind of similarly to 33. I, I think at least those top six, maybe even seven guys uh, have a, a real shot here of having a special run in Pittsburgh. Obviously, Penn State fans are hoping Joseph uh, has a, another great run in him here. But, um, you know, from the quarterfinals in, uh, it is going to be tough sledding for everybody in that weight class as well. Uh, I want to get to the venue. Obviously, I did basketball in there three months ago, and the people there that, are, that work at the venue were already excited about having the NCAA Wrestling Championships there. What is the city of Pittsburgh like right now in terms of their ability to embrace this great championship? Yeah, I, I do think there is a tremendous buzz in Pittsburgh and, and really throughout Pennsylvania, certainly western Pennsylvania. This is uh, a long time coming. Uh, and, you know, Keith Gavin was at the coach's press conference today, the head coach of Pitt, and, and he talked about what 
just a special opportunity this is for this area, which is such a hotbed for scholastic wrestling and really for college wrestling as well, uh, to have this opportunity to kind of showcase the sport uh, in Pittsburgh. PPG Paints Arena is just a, a fantastic venue. Uh, for the event, we had a chance to go over there and just kind of scope some, some things out uh, earlier today. And I, I really do think this is, uh, it shows you how kind of the, the focal point of college wrestling has changed here. The fact that we're having uh, back-to-back NCAA tournaments in the uh, on the east side of the country, yes. Cleveland last year and Pittsburgh this year. There was a time, Steve, and I, I mean that time was like 10 years ago when that would have been inconceivable. I, I remember it was have, a, I remember it was a big deal when it went to Philly. Oh yeah, and that was once. I mean, I was yes. doing it, uh, getting it in the I, I want to say over a five-year period. That was the Quentin Wright year, if I remember. Yes, yep, yes, it, it was, and that's uh, and that's you know that's the other kind of special angle to this. Uh, I think for Penn State, not that this is the uh, the end of Kale's run, but I think you're kind of looking at a at bookends here with the Pennsylvania. Uh, sites with the, the first national title uh, by Cal Sanderson, one in Philadelphia, and you know, hopefully Penn State uh, looking for an eighth title here uh, under Cal in Pittsburgh, and, and a chance to again send off two of the the most special wrestlers, uh, certainly in Penn State history, but really in the history of the sport, in Jason Nolf and Bo Nickel and in style. Probably when we talk next week, I'll probably revisit this question. But have you had really any time? yourself personally just in, in a moment of reflection to to really consider what you've had the privilege of watching the last nine years i have steve i've actually been <laughs> i was talking about it i i room on the uh, road trips with uh, the trainer dan monthly and yeah. uh, he and who's, i were who's outstanding who's outstanding by the way oh, he, he is uh, i i you cannot overstate what he means to this yep. program and the work he does. Yep. Uh, he is uh, bordering on a miracle worker in terms of, and there's been some great stories over the years about how he has uh, uh, healed and gotten some kids ready for the tournament. But we were reflecting back before Cal got here on you know the, the dream of Penn State winning a national title and whether or not we would see it. And, and to watch the, the kids that have come through, the way they've competed, the way they've performed, the way they've uh, handled things off the mat, uh, you know, that you're not going to find uh, uh, two kids that spend any more time uh, giving autographs and posing for pictures than Jason Alf and Bo Nickel. But they're just uh, gracious kids. Uh, you know, just was Ed Ruth and David Taylor and Quentin Wright and Frank Molinaro, and you go down the, the list. I mean, it it really is. And yes, I I do sit back <laughs> fairly often, and uh, I mean, it it has just been amazing. And and to see it up close and personal, and see the the combination of talent, uh, hard work, and perspective that these uh, these kids have. I mean, it, it, you said it exactly right. It, it has been a tremendous privilege uh, to be in, in the spot I've been in here for this uh, decade run and, and certainly looking forward to seeing what the future holds. But I, I think... Um, you know, a chance here for a, a, an historically good weekend in Pittsburgh. I really think this team uh, has a chance to go down as the greatest team in the history of college wrestling. Uh, again, that's obviously going to be dependent on how things uh, go over the next three days. But uh, I'm expecting big things. I know they're expecting big things. And, uh, you know, again, we're, we're talking about uh, stuff of, of historical significance here with this year's squad in particular. Well, if you don't mind me saying, they've had exactly the right person there to chronicle it all those years, so enjoy it. 
Well, I am definitely doing that, I assure you. <laughs> I mean, when you're actually there, because I know when, when you're not there, you're out in the town. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, just, yeah, that's you. Living large. You know how I like to do <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much. Enjoy every second. I know you'll do your usual outstanding job. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate uh, it. Jeff Byers, the voice of Penn State Wrestling. Chris Trapasso in the NFL Draft. Next half hour on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Brought to you by Sunbury Motors. Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors studio, here's Steve Jones. All right, uh, Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kierwoods, 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Uh, we will uh, stay with the NFL. Uh, Robert Kraft is not going to accept a plea deal. That just came over. Uh, so that uh, story plays on, as does the NFL draft playing on. Chris Trapasso joins us from CBSSports.com. Chris, welcome. Great to have you with us. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you. You are in the process now of doing your own seven-round mock draft. About what point in that seven-round mock draft, as you're going through the process, and I think you're releasing it Friday, at one point, do you start to say, okay, <laughs> what do I do here? How deep into it? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good question. Probably around the fourth or fifth mm-hmm. round, I think uh, teams, obviously first-rounders, very important. Second and third rounders, I think most teams and most fan bases expect you know quality contributions from those players right away. Right. Um, but fourth, fifth, sixth round guys that, you know, if they make some contributions early, I think that's good. Um, but there's really hard to tell, you know, how the dominoes are going to fall once we get that far into the draft. Just look at team needs and, and a round where I have some guys slotted and then just put some guys in um, on those day three picks. Do you ever figure in the possibility of trades? I mean, that's always difficult. For example, the Giants could end up trading for Josh Rosen. Yeah, um, in my last mock draft, I actually had that exact trade go down, that I had right. um, the Giants and the Cardinals uh, flipping that first-round pick that the Giants got in the Odell Beckham trade for Josh Rosen. Um, but with the seven-rounder, my editor actually does one really close to the draft where he includes, like, four or five trades in, in each round. It's kind of his huge project <laughs> okay. for draft season. Okay. <laughs> Outside of the first round, though, for me, for this one, because it is somewhat early – um, in terms of, you know, all the developments that could happen in the draft. Beyond the first round, I'm not going to do too many trades. Right. Know, sixth round trades or anything like that. But free agency plays a role in what you're thinking, too. Like, just take mm-hmm. the Cowboys. Cowboys now sign Randall Cobb to a one-year contract. So it probably changes your thought process in the later rounds how the Cowboys may look at a wideout. Yeah, and that's something that I, like, when I go into one of these seven-rounders, um, which, again, it, it's more of just an exercise to see where teams could potentially address specific needs. Just try to identify the needs right now, kind of post-free agency. I mean, there's right. still some good players out there. Um, but, yeah, it, it certainly has changed over the last couple weeks that, you know, there have been some big signings um, and then some teams like you just mentioned yesterday um, with Cole Beasley leaving. Yeah. Cowboys and Randall Cobb, and they don't need a slot receiver anymore. So, yeah, that certainly changes things even for later in the draft, too. All right, so let's get to the top of the draft. How do you view the first five picks on your mock draft? 
Um, I still think Tyler Murray is going to be the first pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything that I heard while I was in Indianapolis, um, there was a, a little bit of speculation that, that this was all smoke and the Cardinals are just going to stick with Rosen. I think with Cliff Kingsbury there, Tyler Murray's kind of his idea of quarterback to run that system. I think the 49ers go Nick Bosa. They've invested a lot on the defensive line the last couple drafts. Yes, they have. But some of those picks were not Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch. I think Nick Bosa is the best overall player, so they would pick him. Um, I think the Jets, because they missed on Anthony Barring free agency and that there were some reports that they were going to use him on the edge, I still think they want to address that position. It's their, probably their most glaring need at this point. Um, so I think they're going to pick Josh Allen from Kentucky. Um, and then the Raiders are kind of a X factor, kind of a wild card, that we can't really tell uh, what John Gruden is really thinking or how much uh, Mike Mack is really playing into the decision-making process there. I think they picked Quinn Williams. It's not the biggest need for that team that has a lot of holes, but he might be the best player at number four. And then number five, I have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers right now picking Devin White from LSU, the linebacker. They lost Quan Alexander in free agency. They need a, a you know supreme athlete at that position, right. and he would fill the void. Right. Um, the Giants have met with Dwayne Haskins ahead of his pro day, and his pro day is this afternoon. Do you have that projection for the Giants in Haskins, or have you cooled on that? Well, I mean, after Dave Gettleman talked earlier this week, he was really staunch in his defense of Eli Manning and, and said, right. you know, it was a, a crock and said anyone who thought that he was overpaid or still couldn't play, everything that has come out of Dave Gettleman from their head coach, Pat Shermer, at the combine, they seem pretty dedicated still to Eli Manning. I don't think they're going to pick Haskins at this point unless they're trying to throw everyone for a loop. I actually have them picking Jawan Taylor, the right tackle out of Florida. Big physical guy who's kind of similar to some of the tackles that uh, Gettleman had in Carolina. Um, and to just kind of fortify the offensive line, it's been a problem for the Giants for a long time. The sexy picks are always going to be the quarterbacks, the wideouts, the running backs, and so forth. In reality, how heavy a draft is this in the trenches? I think it's a lot heavier than those two other spots that yes. you mentioned, especially yep. quarterback, mm-hmm. um, especially defensive tackle, defensive end. I think those are the two best positions in this draft, that with, and that means with the most top-end talent and the most depth into the second and third round. I like the wide receiver class from about pick 15 to pick 45. I think a lot could go off the board then. And the quarterback position, I mean, after we had such a great class last year, Mm -hmm. um, when the Giants probably should have been a quarterback early, (laughs) um, this class is not really that good. I think Kyler Murray can be a great player in the correct system. Same with Drew Locke. You don't want him in a West Coast offense. You want him pushing the ball down the field. Mm -hmm. And Dwayne Haskins has all the talent in the world, but he needs more experience. I think he needs to land with a team that's not going to make him start right away. Landing in New York would be perfect. I just don't think you're going to pick him. Right. Well, the other part, too, is Haskins needs an offensive line. He does not move well. Yeah. Now, with the Giants, they're used to that. With Eli, Eli doesn't move well at all. But, again, he doesn't move well. Murray moves beautifully. I think Locke's not bad the way he moves. Haskins does not. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to kind of split up those quarterbacks. That's one of my biggest worries about Haskins is that he was barely pressured in his only his one season at Ohio State. Right. And when he was kind of forced off um, his block or his base, that's when you saw some of that 
lack of athleticism and just the feel for the pocket presence not really there yet. So I think landing with the Giants, sitting behind Eli Manning for a year while they build their offensive line would be a perfect scenario, and it would build for the future of that team. I just am not um, really convinced that Dave Gettleman will go in that direction at number six. And, of course, there's always that tendency that once there starts to be a run on a position, then you know, over a seven-round draft, once there seems to be a run on a position, then there's a run on a position. Somebody picks, you know, two teams pick wide outs, and suddenly they go. Uh, so let's get to the wide receiver part of it. When you look at the wideouts, about how early in this draft do you think, because of the depth in the trenches, how early in this draft could there be a run on some wideouts? In terms of a run, I think probably somewhere in the 20s. Okay. Um, we saw it a couple years ago in the 2016 draft when Will Fuller, Josh Jackson, and um, La- Laquan Treadwell went in the 20s. Right. Um, I think that's kind of where we're going to see that happen again. Someone like DK Metcalf could go in the top half of the first round, but guys like Nikhil Harry from Arizona State, um, A.J. Brown from Ole Miss, J.J. Arcega-Wapeside from Stanford, I think those players, if one gets picked, I think some teams could maybe panic and say, hey, let's you know, pick him at 25, 26, like the Colts. Yeah. Um, kind of start there, but that's kind of the range that I could see. Some of these more marquee wide receiver prospects um, that we could see a run there at the end of the first. Uh, a lot of people here obviously are going to think about the Pittsburgh Steelers and what they need to do. How does your draft have the Steelers? How do you handle the Steelers in your draft? Well, I think first and foremost, because they set records last year in terms of offensive touchdowns for the franchise, uh, they threw it at a higher percentage um, than any other team in the NFL. Even losing Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell, I mean, you saw what James Conner did last year. The offensive line really isn't losing any parts, um, I, and I certainly trust what they can do up front and with Ben Roethlisberger. They need defense. They need yeah. a linebacker to replace Ryan Shazier. I think Devin Bush from Michigan, if he lasts that far to number 20, yeah. um, would be a great pick. I agree with corner. that. I agree I agree with that. And the, the, the difference between Bush and Shazier at, at the same time, and I'm going this, Chris, obviously, and what I watched in person with each guy, mm-hmm. is Shazier is, is just better. It was more natural in the passing game than, than, than Bush. But in terms of lateral movement, they're the same. Yeah, and, I mean, those are two electric players in space. I totally agree with you um, in terms of their coverage ability. Yes. Brian Chazier was my number one um, off-ball linebacker in that 2013 draft. Bush is my number two linebacker behind Kevin White just because of his size and because, like you're saying, you know, covering those tight ends, covering those running backs on wheel routes, I think he can be a step slow reacting. But as we saw at the combine, he can run and move with anybody in the NFL. How much of this – we had Joe Lenardi on the show last week talking about bracketology. And, you know, it's not really Joe's opinion. It's He's trying to think along with the committee. Is this what you try to do with the draft? Are you trying to think along with the teams and the pattern of the draft? How do you try to put that together? That's a really good question, and it's one that I, I don't get enough that I think is really important. Anytime I'm doing a mock draft, unless it's stipulated somewhere in the intro, I'm trying to to think like all the teams and what they will probably do and which prospects will go maybe earlier than I would pick them. Okay. Anytime I'm coming out with an article that's my big board or positional rankings or any kind of one-off article like that, that's how I view the players myself. So right. a mock draft, 
how I'm trying to peg the first round, or maybe all 256 picks on Friday. But rankings to me are not where these guys will go, but where I would ultimately pick them if I was a GM of a team. And, for example, let's take a team like, let's just say Dallas. And we all know what Dallas's pattern had been, and they changed the pattern because they it was always – Oh, they were always going for the big play guy, the big play guy, and then finally they settled in and started drafting guys in the trenches. Do you think about team patterns as to what they've done over the years, as to how they approach the draft? Some some teams love the combine numbers. Other teams love to look at tape and football players. Yeah, definitely, um, especially when there's obviously stability in their front office or yeah. with the GM. And with two of those teams, um, with the Cowboys, you know, obviously Stephen Jones has, has kind of been – the person that took over that GM role from his dad and made some good decisions. He picked Zach Martin over Johnny Manziel. Um, they they really dedicated on what they did in the 90s by building that really good offensive line and then driving from there. A team like the Seahawks that's had John Schneider as their GM for a long time now and Pete Carroll there um, as the head coach. They love the combine. They love athleticism. So you do look at those trends and, and over – Maybe even just two drafts if a GM's still in place, you can see some noticeable trends. Some teams like younger prospects, some teams like the guys that are at the Senior Bowl, um, and it's something to definitely take note of when you're making these mock draft picks. And when you're sitting there in the top five to ten, you can make certain picks. Now, as time goes, you may have the same need as those teams, but you have to go someplace else. You wrote a great article on, okay, the big guy is gone, who the plan B guys are. You had Nick Bosa, Anthony Nelson of Iowa. Great length, by the way, on him. DJ uh, DK Metcalf. All right, he runs straight. At, he, runs straight he can't cut, but <laughs> Jazz Ferguson of Northwestern yeah. State. Quentin Williams, okay, but you can go to Kalen Saunders of Western Illinois. Ed Oliver, well, you can go to Tristan Hill of UCF. Devin White, you can go to Blake Cashman. I've always liked him at Minnesota. Good, solid player. Uh, you want to go to Greedy Williams? You're playing B as Amani Oriuari at Penn State. Uh, I thought you know, By- uh, Byron Murphy, obviously saw him at, at Washington. David Long at Michigan. Two very, I mean, these are all very similar players. Yeah, and I think with that idea for that article, it was just this is what happens to teams, that a team like the Steelers could maybe covet someone like a Byron Murphy, hope he falls, maybe call about some trade-ups, but ultimately can't get it done. So they go with the best player um, with the best player on the board or potentially you know, maybe their second or third biggest need, and then they look to kind of come around again on that cornerback in the second round. So that's what I wanted to kind of provide readers um, just that if their team misses, there are some comparable players in terms of style or athleticism, um, and that's what that whole article was kind of predicated and on. And you also gave a day three option as well. I'll, I'll give you one here. It was Devin White, Blake Cashman, Ben Burkirvin of Washington. Same thing. I mean, look, this guy is a good, solid player uh, that I, has the athleticism, I think, to play. Yeah, and he's someone um, that I actually really, really like, and I think he kind of got knocked for his lack of size at Washington. Yes. Um, this is Ben Burkirvin that I'm talking about. Right. But And everyone kind of expected, oh, he's not really going to run that fast. He's not that great of an athlete. He tested up there with all the top, you know, with, with Cashman, just behind both Devin Bush and Devin White, and was just a tackling machine, was great in coverage for the Huskies. So he's someone that – even if you're sitting in the fourth or fifth round, oh, man, we missed on Devin Bush. We missed on Blake Cashman. Let's take Ben Burkirvin and get someone that can start for us right away. Yep, watched a lot of tape on him, obviously, and then did the Fiesta Bowl when he played Penn State. So, mm-hmm. yep, I can hear that. Hey, 
Chris, great to have you with us. This was this is fascinating. I really enjoyed it. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah. Surpasso from CBSSports.com. We'll wrap it up in a moment on News Radio 1070 WKOK, brought to you by Sunbury Motors. All right, welcome back. Great to have you with us. NCAA uh, basketball tonight. Be uh, two games on tap this evening which will then kick into the full field being engaged tomorrow. Starting uh, just after noon, it's uh, North Carolina Central and North Dakota State at 640 this evening. And then the nightcap this evening in college basketball is uh, going to be uh, St. John's and Arizona State. Arizona State wins it, by the way. They, Bobby Hurley would be going up against his former program, Buffalo. But we'll have to get past St. John's first. Um, Matty Ice, a couple of Bucknell wrestlers, by the way, in the NCAAs in Pittsburgh, too. Yes, what uh, both, doing. both in 157. Um, it's gonna, it's, 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 we just got this a couple minutes ago. Zach Hardman, a freshman at 157, and Drew Phillips, who's a junior, so they're both going to represent the Bison at 157 in Pittsburgh coming up this weekend. So we've got some Bucknellians ready to roll, too, Steve. That's good. And we wish them nothing but the best of luck. Uh, or thanks to Jeff Byers for being on the show today. Tomorrow on the show, we'll have updates on the NCAA Wrestling Championships in Pittsburgh. We'll have updates on the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament, which will get underway in earnest tomorrow. I'll have my app ready to rock and roll with plenty of updates. I have uh, I have not filled out a bracket. Well, you got to do that before noon tomorrow. We're yeah. going to share our Final Four predictions and championship yeah. predictions. Yeah, I'll do that at some point here tonight. Just kind of sit down. A little football practice to go to first. Although I did share mine earlier before you came on, but I'll, I'll do it again for those that missed it. Ah, very good. What bothered me is that the suit turned into his final four. I thought it was a prerequisite to have the team in the field. (laughs) Uh, I I, I, I mean, do you get concerned? I do. I'm very concerned. I just let it roll. 